I make known to the French that I enter their country at the head of an army already victorious, not as an enemy, except of the usurper, declared to be the enemy of mankind, with whom may be had neither peace nor truce, but to help them shake off the yoke of iron with which they are oppressed. It is necessary, then, that they supply the requisitions which will be made upon them, by persons authorized to make the same, and that they will stay at home peaceably. All those who will absent themselves from their homes after the entry in France, and all those who will be absent in the service of the usurper, will be considered as his adherents and as enemies, and their property will be appropriated for the subsistence of the army. The Duke of Wellington, June 22, 1815. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 38, Napoleon's Hundred Days, Part 3 On March 7, 1815, a note was handed to Prince Clement von Metternich, foreign minister of the Austrian Empire, who was then presiding over the Congress of Vienna. The note from the British consulate in Genoa read, quote, The English Commissioner Campbell has just entered the harbor, inquiring whether anyone has seen Napoleon at Genoa, in view of the fact that he had disappeared from the island of Elba, the answer being in the negative, the English frigate, without further delay, put out to sea. This was the first the Congress of Vienna heard about Napoleon's escape from Elba, a situation that was to cause considerable trouble for them over the next hundred days. The Congress, which has come up before in our series, was basically a confab of ambassadors and minor crowned heads of Europe from among the victorious Allied states who defeated Napoleon for the first time in 1814. It was also one of the most epic and self-indulgent parties in history. Filled with sumptuous banquets, dances, and galas, the metal-bedecked diplomats at Vienna spent vast amounts of money on food, booze, hotels, clothes, and their mistresses, while occasionally pausing to redraw borders or make some secret alliance. Napoleon's return, though, snapped the Congress to attention pretty quickly. Prince Talleyrand, who had formerly been Napoleon's own foreign minister, took the lead in drafting a document called the Declaration of the Congress of Vienna, which was issued on March 15th, only six days after the first word of Napoleon's escape arrived. By the standards of early 19th century diplomacy, this declaration was pretty extreme. It says, quote, The powers consequently declare that Napoleon Bonaparte has placed himself without the pale of civil and social relations, and that as an enemy and disturber of the tranquility of the world, 
he has rendered himself liable to public vengeance. Although entirely persuaded that all France, rallying around its legitimate sovereign, will immediately annihilate this last attempt of criminal and impotent delirium, all the sovereigns of Europe declare that if, contrary to all calculations, there should result from this event any real danger, they will be ready to give to the King of France and to the French nation, or to any other government that shall be attacked, as soon as they shall be called upon, all the assistance requisite to restore public tranquility. End quote. This document stands alone in the modern history of diplomacy. It's a declaration of war by a coalition of nations against a single person, and its language appears to give anybody who might encounter Napoleon, a soldier, a policeman, a coachman, a maid, a random stranger on the street, a license to kill him in cold blood. The senior British delegate at Vienna was one Arthur Wellesley, better known as the Duke of Wellington, a senior British army commander who had, in January 1815, replaced the previous delegate, Lord Castlereagh. Wellington was not keen on the text of the declaration. He had no love for Napoleon, but he thought it went too far. Indeed, the British Parliament ultimately refused to endorse it. Nevertheless, Wellington knew from almost the get-go that there would have to be yet another military campaign to defeat Napoleon, again, and he knew he was going to have to lead it. On March 12th, even before the declaration was officially adopted, Wellington was already writing letters back to London outlining the military strategy against Napoleon. The idea was that Austria would send an army to protect Vienna, while a Russian army of 200,000 men would start marching west into Germany. The Prussians would join the circle, closing in on Napoleon, and finally a joint British and Dutch army, likely to be commanded by Wellington himself, would join the fight. But as it turned out, Austria and Russia decided they had more to fear from each other than from Napoleon. Neither country wanted to risk destroying their own armies in battle with Napoleon, only to be left open to a potential conquest by the other. Austria and Russia dragged their feet and ultimately responded pretty slowly to the growing crisis. It was soon clear to Wellington that this round against Napoleon would be fought mostly by Britain, Prussia, and the Netherlands. This episode, the third and last in our series on Napoleon's Hundred Days, is the story of that war, and how Napoleon, for lack of a better word, met his Waterloo. I'm assuming it's no spoiler to tell you how it ended. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. But there are some surprises in the various twists and turns of how Napoleon's story finally ended, and the whole thing is worth evaluating the big question that comes up too seldom when talking about this conflict. What was at stake? And was it worth it? So join me as we round out one of the most dramatic and compelling stories from the entire second decade, and one that's still shrouded, you might say, in the fog of war. This is Napoleon's Hundred Days, Part 3. Good evening. Before we dive back into the story of Napoleon, I have a couple of very quick announcements. I have a new book coming out. It's not a history book, but rather a novel. It's called Jake's 88, and it's a coming-of-age story set in the 1980s, the year 1988 to be precise. I was 16 in 1988, and the book incorporates a lot of my reminiscences from that time. It's also loaded with 80s pop culture references and meant to appeal to those of us who have a certain nostalgia for that truly bizarre decade. 
Jake's 88 comes out on January 15th of next year, 2019 that is, but it's available for pre-order now on Amazon. There's a Kindle version that you can pre-order now, and there will also be a paperback version too. If that's not up by the time you hear this, it will be soon. Just go to Amazon, search in books, type in either my name, Sean Munger, you'll go to my author page, or the title, Jake's 88, there's an apostrophe in there, and you should be able to find it. Simultaneously with this episode, I'll also be dropping an off-topic episode. You know what off-topic is. Those are bonus podcast episodes where I deal with history that falls outside the parameters of the main show, meaning the 18-teens. In connection with the release of Jake's 88, I've decided to do at least two off-topic episodes dealing with the cultural, social, and political history of the 1980s, the backdrop of the novel, and the first one of these two is being released on the same day as this episode. If you're wondering what the connection is between Napoleon and the cultural history of the 1980s, well, I have to admit, you got me there. The only thing I can think of is that Napoleon was a minor character in the original Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, that movie that came out in 1989, which really is a funny depiction. Napoleon is played by uh, Terry Camilleri in that film. Second, real quick announcement also related to off-topic. You may remember last year the very first off-topic episode, called The Sun Also Rises, dealt with a very strange story of Sun Classic Pictures, the fake history woo-slinging movie studio that gave us such towering cinematic achievements as The Lincoln Conspiracy and In Search of Historic Jesus. Well, on the basis of that episode and an article on my blog about the same topic, Dan Delgado of the podcast The Industry interviewed me for an episode he did about Sun Classic Pictures. The episode is called Staring at the Sun, and again, the podcast title is The Industry. It's a really great podcast about movie and TV history, and it's rapidly become one of my favorites. So look for The Industry on your favorite podcatcher, and if you can't get enough of me, check out that episode, Staring at the Sun. Big thanks to Dan Delgado, great to work with him. And now, Napoleon. This is the third and final episode in my mini-series on Napoleon's Hundred Days, which is one of the most dramatic events of the entire second decade, and, I admit, one of the reasons I created this show in the first place. One of the things that amazes me about doing this show is what I learned that I didn't know before. I have a PhD in history, and I have taught European history of this period at the university level, which you would think means that there's very little in this story that should surprise me. But in researching this episode, principally about Waterloo, I was amazed by what I didn't know and the misconceptions I had about Waterloo and the end of Napoleon's brief second reign. For instance, before delving into the research, I believed that Waterloo was the largest battle of the Napoleonic Wars, if not in terms of casualties, and that distinction belongs to Borodino in 1812, but at least in terms of men engaged. It wasn't. I also believe that Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo led directly to his political downfall, that knowing he was defeated, he basically walked right off the battlefield, surrendered to the Allies, and was sent to St. Helena pretty much right away. That's not what happened. The story is much more complicated than that. I was also amazed by how much historians differ in their judgments of what happened during and after the Battle of Waterloo. I don't often talk about my sources for this show, although I do try to mention them at the end of each episode, but bear with me on this one. I consulted many sources for this series, but the two I used most in-depth were 100 Days Napoleon's Road to Waterloo by Alan Sham, 
and Waterloo, New Perspectives, The Great Battle Reappraised by David Hamilton Williams. Sham is American, though he got his PhD from Durham University in Britain. David Hamilton Williams is a British-born historian. These guys couldn't be more diametrically opposed in their viewpoints on Napoleon's Hundred Days. Sham paints a picture of Napoleon's brief return to power as sort of the last act of a desperate man, a narcissist long past his prime and intellectually and politically out of his depth, whose France is falling apart during the Hundred Days, and the Battle of Waterloo comes along and delivers the inevitable coup de grace. Sham emphasizes the bankruptcy of the French state in 1815, Napoleon's difficulty in raising and equipping an army, the revolts that were springing up all over the place from literally the moment he stepped back into the Tuileries Palace in March 1815. Sham's thesis is that the Hundred Days was a hopeless enterprise, and Napoleon was fighting and wasting the lives of tens of thousands of human beings solely for his own neck. Mr. Hamilton Williams, by contrast, has an entirely different view. Throughout his book, he constantly trumpets how much the French people believed in Napoleon, and especially how much better he was than the Bourbon kings. You remember Bonaparte ran off the chubby and indolent Louis XVIII, who had been restored to the French throne in a rather futile attempt by the European allies, especially Britain, to turn back the clock on the French Revolution. Hamilton Williams also claims that Waterloo wasn't the death sentence for Napoleon that world history usually makes it out to be, that he could have and should have sprang right back into the fight with the new army and fought the British and Prussians to a standstill, if only he wasn't betrayed back in Paris by duplicitous politicians who were secretly in love with those nasty Bourbons. In this casting of the story, Napoleon is Caesar and Fouché is Brutus. Color me skeptical. The fact that this dichotomy exists just between these two sources among the literally hundreds of books written about this topic demonstrates that the subject of Napoleon's Hundred Days really isn't settled, and that I think, and this is just my opinion, I think our collective understanding of Waterloo has been shaped much more by battles among historians since 1815 than it really is about the armies that clashed on a field in Belgium in June of that year. What also emerges from my study of this topic is how bloodless and antiseptic Waterloo has become for us 200 years later. Quite frankly, I dreaded doing this episode, because Waterloo is the apotheosis of the military historian's approach to teaching history, an approach I've always had a great difficulty understanding or relating to. When you get into the subject of Waterloo, you better be prepared to look at a lot of maps. Case in point. Between pages 64 and 65 of the Hamilton-Williams book, there are no less than 16 pages of maps, most of them battlefield maps. For example, there's a two-page spread titled Battle of Waterloo, Dispositions at 11.30 a.m. 18 June. This map has got double lines and single lines and lots of tiny rectangles and symbols with the names of commanders hovering over them. The Duke of Wellington's position is marked by a big box with an X in it, and it's labeled Wellington, 67,661 and 156 guns. We've got little initials everywhere. W, Wellington's position. N1, Napoleon's main position. N2, Napoleon's secondary position. Oh look, there's all the French generals' names, all with little boxes. Later on, there's photographs of farmhouses and roads and fields in rural Belgium, most apparently taken by the author himself about 25 years ago. The book was published in 1993. Here's the caption of one of them. Quote, The approach from the lane, still a dirt track, to the farm of Papalote. 
Around these hedgerows and walled buildings, the Netherland and Nassau troops of Perponchet's 2nd Brigade fought all day. End quote. Let me read another quote from this book. This comes at the height of the battle on June 18th. Quote, the fighting at the hedges bordering the road and fronting the French assault reached a critical stage. The arc of Kempt's brigade was wheeling into line, and the 79th added their fire to that of the 28th, then they crossed the hedges to charge home with the bayonet. The advance of the French regimental columns caused the 28th to divide into two wings. The right wing fired into the column nearest them, which was yada yada yada. You get the picture. I reject this approach. I really do. I just reject it. This is the kind of thing that makes history boring to most people. Where's the human story in this? The paragraph I just read to you involved a group of soldiers, led by General Kempt, a Prussian commander, charging French troops with bayonets drawn. Most of us who've never been in war can't quite imagine the reality of a bayonet charge. It is horrendous. Imagine that you're on the battlefield in this pretty farm country on a hot June day. There's musket balls flying everywhere and cannon shells bursting over your head. There's dead guys all around you. People with their faces blown off and jagged stumps squirting blood where their limbs used to be. And you're ordered to fix bayonets and rush right into a group of French soldiers shooting at you almost point blank. A bayonet is a hideous weapon. Bayonets were still used heavily in the First World War during the era of photography. And if you want to see what bayonets can do to human bodies, try some Google image searches with the phrases bayonet wounds and World War I, and you'll see some pretty horrifying stuff. If you were a French soldier who got bayoneted in the face during the Battle of Waterloo and survived, imagine how that awful moment would transform your life. If you were the Prussian soldier who did it, imagine what your nightmares would be like for the rest of your life. You would never stop reliving that moment, however long you lived. These realities slide by in a couple of casual words in books like these, which are more concerned with getting the numbers of the regiments right than in communicating any historical reality of what this event was like. How did the history of Waterloo get this way? How did it get to be primarily a story of maps and numbers and generals' names, rather than human beings who really lived? Well, I'll get to that at the end of this episode, when I tell you about the aftermath of Napoleon's Hundred Days, but in the meantime, I have to tell you in a basic sense what happened. And I'm going to do it without the little squares and arrows on maps. I'm not going to tell you which army charged this way or whose reserve was positioned where. Can we just cut to the chase, please? The real story of these people, what they did, and why they did it. When we left off at the end of the last episode, Napoleon, dressed in his green coat and bicorn hat, was rattling off to the front in his carriage. The front was in Belgium, or what's now Belgium, which was not an independent country in 1815. It was part of the United Kingdom of the Netherlands, one of the allies arrayed against France. At the top of tonight's show, I talked about how and why the heavy lifting to defeat Napoleon in 1815 fell mainly to the British, the Dutch, and the Prussians. Wellington was the British commander. The Prussian top dog was a fellow named Gebhard von Blücher, who was in his 70s, basically a classic Prussian military commander, complete with enormous handlebar mustache. Blücher had gone up against Napoleon before. In fact, they faced each other no less than five times, and Blücher had clowned Bonaparte at the Battle of Leipzig in 1813. Blücher's chief of staff was General August von Niesenau, who, like Blücher, would also have a World War II-era ship named after him. The Allies' plan was to invade France. I know, pretty shocking. I mean, who could have predicted that strategy? 
Assembling their armies at a somewhat more leisurely pace than Napoleon was doing, Wellington and Blücher planned to start the invasion on July 1st. Napoleon thought his only chance was to strike them before they could finish assembling their forces, which would supposedly buy him time to scrape together another army and hang on for another couple of months. Although the British and Prussian armies were pretty much ready to go in mid-June, the overall idea was to have them wait in Belgium until Russia and Austria could get their forces in place. At the time Napoleon drove up in his carriage, Russian armies were still marching across Germany. It would be a couple of weeks before they got into position to back up the British and Prussian troops. Plus, the Brits that Wellington had to send into the field weren't exactly the cream of the crop. The best troops in the British army were also, in June 1815, still in transit. They'd been sent across the Atlantic the previous year to fight the United States, and peace in that war was only concluded in February 1815, so the British troops that could be spared for the continent were sort of the junior varsity team. Wellington and Blücher weren't unmindful of the possibility that Napoleon might attack them before they were really ready to go. At a farmhouse in a place called Terlemont, the two commanders met and agreed on a contingency plan. If Bonaparte tried to have a go at them, they, the British and Prussians, would combine their forces and try to hold him off. That only makes sense. All the squares and symbols on the maps make the basic strategy seem much more complicated than it really was. For his part, Napoleon did what he could to bamboozle the Brits and Germans. One of his tactics was to confuse his enemies by sending out men from the French army to look like deserters, armed with fake information about where the French armies really were and what they were planning, in the hopes that the British and Prussians would pick it up and believe it. It seems this campaign of fake news largely worked, at least up to a point. On June 13, 1815, the Duke of Wellington wrote a letter to one of his superiors back in London. He said, quote, There is nothing new here. We have reports of Bonaparte's joining the army and attacking us, but I have accounts from Paris of the 10th, on which day he was still there, and I judge from his speech to the legislature that his departure was not likely to be immediate. I think we are too strong for him here. End quote. In fact, Wellington was so convinced that nothing was going to happen for a while that he accepted a lot of social invitations for the coming week. The most prestigious of these was a ball that was to be held in Brussels on Thursday night, June 15th, at the mansion of the Duchess of Richmond, a British émigré. At about 3.30 in the morning on that Thursday, June 15th, Napoleon's army crossed the border of France and the Netherlands. The first fighting started about 5 a.m., when some French troops encountered Prussian outposts. The Germans quickly found themselves outnumbered, and some units surrendered. At about the same time, though, a fateful event was occurring not far away. One of Bonaparte's junior commanders, General Louis Comte de Beaumont, executed what appeared to be a pretty carefully constructed plan to turn coat. De Beaumont was apparently a royalist agent, loyal to the Bourbons. After deploying his forces, he sent a letter to another French commander, announcing his intention to desert, and then he and his staff rode their horses toward the Prussian lines. It's said they were wearing white cockade hats, which were the symbol of the Bourbon monarchy. De Bourmont got off his horse and demanded to see General Blücher, claiming he had the entire operational plan for the French army. Blücher's chief of staff, Nissenau, was pretty stoked to have the French plans delivered to him on a silver platter, but Blücher, being an old soldier, apparently thought the defection of a senior officer was dishonorable. Cockade be damned, he shouted. A dirty dog is always a dirty dog. With this little bit of espionage, one of history's greatest battles was about to get started. 
On that day, Thursday the 15th of June, Napoleon and his armies captured the city of Charleroi, which was also to be a major battlefield a hundred years later during the First World War. Word started to reach the British commander, Wellington, who as you recall was in Brussels getting all spiffed up for the Duchess of Richmond's ball, that Bonaparte was on the move. He wasn't sure whether it was the main attack by the French or a feint, F-E-I-N-T. Wellington apparently did not yet have word that a French defector had given the Prussians the French army's operational plans. Fighting had been going on all day. Basically, the Prussians were being pushed back by the advancing French. In the evening, Napoleon arrived at Charleroi and set up a headquarters there. He had dinner with Marshal Ney, probably his most important commander but something of a gamble, loyalty-wise, since Ney had betrayed him before. At first, in researching the story of the Hundred Days, I wondered why Napoleon kept trusting these people who had betrayed him before, like Fouché and others. The answer is that by 1815, it was rare to find anyone in France in a position of power, either in the military or the civilian government, who hadn't switched sides at least once before. Unlike Hitler, whose lackeys were fiercely loyal to him, most of Napoleon's toadies were fair-weather friends. At the end of this story, you're going to see why that's significant. The Duchess of Richmond's ball on the evening of June 15, 1815, was one of the most famous parties in history, and certainly a high point in the second decade. It was made famous by William Makepeace Thackeray, who included it in his novel Vanity Fair, and also by Lord Byron, who wrote a poem about it. What's interesting is that we're not exactly sure where the ball took place, the records aren't clear as to which buildings the Duke and Duchess of Richmond were renting in Belgium, and the original property apparently didn't survive into the latter half of the 19th century. But we do know that everybody who was anybody was there. Several members of the Dutch royal family, including the son of the King of the Netherlands, were there, a rogues gallery of Dutch, Prussian, and English nobles, the dowager Countess of Waldegrave, whoever she is, but with a name like that she must have been important, Francis Dundas, who had previously been British governor of the Cape Colony, that's South Africa, and many more. Wellington and his homies barged into the place shortly before midnight, which was before dinner. Yes, they served dinner at 1 a.m. in the second decade. Don't feed the nobles after midnight. Anyway, Wellington showed up and almost immediately started receiving messages. Just as you wouldn't check your texts in the midst of a fancy dinner party, Wellington pocketed some of these messages without reading them. Soon enough, though, he took a look at them and saw the military picture emerging. Bonaparte was definitely attacking. Wellington didn't react at first. He stayed at the table making small talk with the ladies, and after a while he asked his host, the Duke of Richmond, if he had a good map of the area. Note to self, if a military commander at a social occasion asks you if you've got a map handy, something big is going down. One of the witnesses, a Captain Bowles, wrote this account, quote, the Duke of Richmond took Wellington into his dressing room. Wellington shut the door and said, Napoleon has humbugged me, by God. He has gained 24 hours' march on me. I have ordered the army to concentrate at Quatre Bras, but we shall not stop him there, and if so, I must fight him there, passing his thumbnail over the position of Waterloo. The conversation was repeated to me by the Duke of Richmond two minutes after it occurred, end quote. As you might imagine, Wellington was obliged to leave the ball and ride the heck back to his headquarters to take care of business. Before I began research for this episode, I assumed the Battle of Waterloo was basically one big engagement. Actually, it wasn't. It was a series of smaller engagements over several days, leading up to one big blowout on June 18th, 
which is usually what we think of when we talk about the Battle of Waterloo. But like other big 19th century battles, Gettysburg springs immediately to mind, there were actually several different mini-battles that set the stage for the big show. Because I promised you I wasn't going to do the little squares on the map treatment, I'm going to skim over the tactical and operational stuff while still giving you the basic story. The following day, Friday, June 16th, there were two major engagements, one with the French fighting mostly Prussian troops, and the other French versus English. The first one was called the Battle of Ligny, and it got underway early on the morning of June 16th, while Wellington was still en route from Brussels. The key objective of both of these battles was to split the British and Prussian forces. The Battle of Ligny was pretty ferocious. This one goes down in history, technically, as Napoleon's last victory. While he did cause the Prussians to retreat, Napoleon was not successful at destroying Blücher's army. This seemed to happen to him quite a lot, especially in Russia. Napoleon was great at winning battles, and frankly, piss-poor at converting these victories into decisive results, at least in the second half of his career. The second battle, the Battle of Quatre Bras, got going later in the afternoon. This was the battle of the French versus the British under Wellington, who finally arrived. In fact, Wellington was able to meet up with Blücher in an old windmill to plot strategy. Where you can make an argument that Napoleon won the Battle of Ligny, he definitely did not win at Quatre Bras. The key thing here was that the British prevented Napoleon from gaining control of a road that he needed to concentrate his army. I really hate talking about battles in these terms, because as we saw earlier, it makes it sound like a board game. All apologies due to the fans out there of strategic military history, but I really do think it misses the point. By the time the smoke cleared on these battlefields on the evening of June 16th, about 20,000 people were dead or wounded, the most severe losses being among the Prussian armies. That's the same amount of casualties roughly as the Battle of Antietam in the U.S. Civil War, which is universally regarded as a bloodbath. Yet the human cost of this conflict is barely noticeable in most of the writing on it. The Wikipedia article on the Battle of Ligny is over 20,000 words long, more than twice the length of this entire podcast, and it's all about cores and flanking maneuvers and how many artillery pieces there are and pithy quips from commanders. The human face, the many human faces of an event like this are completely, I mean completely, absent from the history. But I digress. The next day, June 17th, there was fighting here and there, but most of the story was about the main commanders, all three of them, Napoleon, Wellington, and Blücher, pulling back and redeploying their forces. Napoleon had a late breakfast and wasted part of the day touring the battlefields from the day before. In the late afternoon, a severe thunderstorm struck the area. One British soldier, a Captain Mercer, wrote this, quote, The sky had become overcast since the morning, and at this present moment presented a most extraordinary appearance. Large, isolated masses of thundercloud, of the deepest, almost inky black, their lower edges hard and strongly defined, lagged down, as if momentarily about to burst, hung suspended over us, involving our position and everything on it in deep and gloomy obscurity. Whilst the distant hill lately occupied by the French army lay bathed in brilliant sunshine. End quote. One can imagine that rain coming down, drenching the battlefields where thousands of bloody corpses still lay where they fell the previous day. Curiously, that detail doesn't make it into many accounts of the battle. This was one of the most famous weather events in history. Some historians have said that the rain and the swampiness of the ground might have been decisive the next day. 
It's certainly true that Napoleon, on the morning of Sunday, June 18th, didn't get his operation started until late morning, mainly waiting for the ground to dry out. I can't tell you if Napoleon started earlier, if the outcome would have been different. But it is pretty clear, on the morning of June 18th, that a decisive fight was coming. Wellington's army had retreated to high ground, and messages between Wellington and Blücher coordinated their plan. He would go out and fight Napoleon that day, and the Prussians would support the British army. Napoleon didn't sleep at all that night. He watched Wellington's movements pretty much all night. Later, he wrote this. Quote, the day began to dawn. I returned to my headquarters well satisfied with the great error which the enemy commander was making, and very anxious lest the bad weather should prevent my taking advantage of it. But already the sky was clearing. At five o'clock I noticed a few faint rays of that sun which, before setting, should light up the defeat of the English army. End quote. At 8 a.m. Napoleon had breakfast with a bunch of his generals. Then they did what generals always do in planning battles— they set up a bunch of maps on a table. Napoleon said, The army of the enemy is superior to ours by more than one-fourth. We nevertheless have ninety chances in our favor and not ten against us. Marshal Ney replied, Without doubt, sire, provided Wellington be simple enough to wait for you. But I must inform you that his retreat is decided, and that if you do not hasten to attack, the enemy is about to escape you. To this, Napoleon said, You are wrong, and it is too late now. Wellington would expose himself to certain loss. He has thrown the dice, and it is in our favor. The battle started sometime between 10 a.m. and 11.30. Curiously, the sources conflict. The real bulk of the fighting, though, got going in the afternoon hours. Apparently, it was quite hot that day. It's hard to imagine being one of those troops out there in the hot sun, in a heavy wool uniform, carrying 40 to 60 pounds of gear on your back, after having marched for days and days, slept in a tent, and not eaten too well. It's kind of amazing how these guys did it. One young officer wrote this account of the battle, quote, Not a man present who survived could have forgotten in after life the awful grandeur of that charge. You perceived at a distance what appeared to be an overwhelming, long-moving line, which, ever advancing, glittered like a stormy wave of the sea when it catches the sunlight. On came the mounted host until they got near enough, whilst the very earth seemed to vibrate beneath their thundering tramp. End quote. The key maneuver from Waterloo was that Wellington's infantry formed a number of squares, and the advancing French troops couldn't get around them. The battle continued on into the evening hours, which was rare in the 19th century. Napoleon sent waves and waves of his soldiers against the British, particularly cavalry, and in some units, the casualties were almost 100%. By nightfall, the French army was falling apart. Everybody was trying to retreat through the village of Genap, across a bridge only seven feet wide. Horses, carts, guns, everything piled up behind it. Even Napoleon himself, who realized he was defeated, bugged out. He abandoned his carriage, got on a horse, and barely escaped being taken prisoner by Prussian troops. The carriage was later found with everything Napoleon had brought with him still inside, including the diamonds his brother had given him a few days before when he left Paris, and even Bonaparte's own personal copy of Machiavelli's The Prince. Napoleon managed to reach the town of Philippeville. From there, he wrote a letter back to Paris, quote, All is by no means lost. I suppose I shall have 150,000 men available when my forces are once more united. The well-affected among the Federated troops and the National Guards will give me another 100,000 men, 
and I shall obtain 50,000 more from the depot battalions. Write to me of the effect which this horrible muddle has produced in the Chamber of Deputies. I believe the deputies will recognize that their duty at this moment is to rally around me, so as to save France. End quote. Napoleon was dreaming. There were no 300,000 men he was going to be able to raise for another try. We talked in the last episode about his extreme money problems and the difficulties in raising fresh troops. It's a miracle that the army he managed to scrape together for Waterloo was as big as it was. If you've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, you may recognize the tone of Napoleon's letter as similar to stuff he said after the disastrous Russian campaign. The story was always the same. Oh, it's not so bad. I'll raise more troops and come back and crush them. France will rally behind me again. Not this time, though. When news of the great defeat at Waterloo reached Paris, Napoleon's fair-weather friends, remember them, decided that enough was enough. You may remember that part two of this miniseries opened with Joseph Fouché, the police minister, double-dealing and writing secret letters to the Allies behind Napoleon's back. Yet inexplicably, when confronted with evidence of his treachery, Napoleon didn't sack him. In fact, he did nothing. Ultimately, this was Bonaparte's undoing. Everything now depended on the reaction of the Chamber of Deputies, France's rubber-stamp legislature, to the news of the defeat. Under the new constitution, such as it was, Napoleon supposedly had the right to dismiss, or prorogue, the chamber, declare a state of emergency, and rule as an absolute dictator. Since this was right up Napoleon's alley, and he feared political attacks from members of the chambers who were spooked by the epic clowning Napoleon received up there in Belgium, the plan was to do exactly that. The Marquis de Lafayette, who earlier in life had been quite chummy with George Washington, was a member of the Chamber of Deputies. He introduced a bill that declared the chamber could not be dissolved, and it called upon the National Guard to defend it, mainly against Napoleon. Napoleon sensed a trap. If he defied the bill and moved to crush the chambers, he'd be playing into the hands of those who already accused him of being a dictator, and the Allies would have even more cause to invade Paris to destroy him. The streets of Paris were filling with angry mobs, some who supported Napoleon, others who despised him. The whole country was sliding into chaos. And those dreams of 300,000 troops were shattered pretty quickly. Marshal Ney rose in the chambers and said that there couldn't be more than 25,000 troops still left under arms. Basically, it was over for Napoleon, and he knew it. He had made it back to Paris on June 21st, exhausted, dirty, and irritable. I get the sense that he didn't have a whole lot of energy left for these political wrangles. Amazingly, there was still fighting going on up in Belgium. Napoleon had a habit of leaving his army when the going got rough, as he'd done in the Russian retreat, but it was clear that Wellington, who survived Waterloo with his army still in fighting condition, was going to come to Paris sooner or later. On June 22, 1815, Napoleon abdicated as emperor for the second and last time. Initially, his abdication was in favor of his son, the King of Rome, but that wasn't very practical. His wife and son were being held hostage in Austria, and they weren't about to let them go back to France. The son was also like five years old. Succession planning fail. Fouché was named the head of a provisional government. The real plan was to restore Louis XVIII, who had issued his own decree declaring war on Napoleon, and who was on his way back to Paris. Napoleon left Paris for the last time on June 25th, spending a few days at Malmaison, his favorite palace. His plan was to charter a ship and flee to the United States. 
One wonders how President Madison would have reacted if Napoleon sailed into New York Harbor and said, Hi, here I am. What's amazing is he almost got away with it. Despite both Wellington and Blücher looking for him, the British and Prussian troops soon entering Paris without a fight, Napoleon managed to make it to the coast and chartered a ship called the Soleil. But the British knew where he was and sent ships to intercept him. On July 10, 1815, as he looked off the deck of the Soleil and saw British ships everywhere, Napoleon gave up for real. He surrendered to the British and was taken prisoner aboard the British ship Bellerophon. The Hundred Days were over. Napoleon's time on the world stage was finally finished. The Waterloo Campaign, with all its battles, had cost both the French and the Allies about 120,000 casualties, and that was in one campaign. It's hard to count all the dead from all of Napoleon's wars. As you recall, I tried to count the casualties of the Russian campaign at the end of that series of episodes, but I was kind of half-hearted about it. Certainly, it ran into the millions. My guess for the death toll of the Napoleonic Wars as a whole, based on the sources I've read, is about 5 to 6 million people. 20 years of war, country after country laid ruin, all basically for one man's glory. This is what's so hard for me to get my head around. Napoleon's Hundred Days weren't really about anything, except for him. As I said in the last episode, Napoleon had no broader ideological objective. He didn't have a program to make life better for the people of France. He was fighting for his own power and that of his family. It was all about him. Very little of that pessimistic bottom line comes through in most of the sources I looked at. Sham, who wrote 100 Days, comes the closest. He at least tries to put Napoleon's behavior into context and puzzle out why this event happened and why it went the way it did. David Hamilton Williams's book, though, Waterloo New Perspectives, is an example of what is sadly the traditional treatment of Waterloo and the Hundred Days. It's 416 pages filled with maps and little rectangles, tables with the orders of battle and the movement orders of armies broken down by date, and which provides a very detailed, minute-by-minute account of the movements of various military units, all that board game stuff. This is mostly what you'll learn if you choose to read about the Battle of Waterloo. If you doubt me, just look at the Wikipedia page with that title and start counting how many multicolored maps you see. It's worth repeating the question that I asked earlier. How did the history of this event get like this? I think it's worth a few words at the end of this episode to touch on that question, because it's an interesting cautionary tale on how not to do history. In 1830, 15 years after the war, and incidentally while the Duke of Wellington was serving as Prime Minister of Britain, the then commander of the British Army, a guy named Roland Hill, tapped a former military officer named William Siborne to create, how perfect is this, a model of the Battle of Waterloo. Yes, a model. A big wooden box with fake hills and trees, little soldier figures all in their proper positions, lines of troops charging up hills, all that kind of stuff. Sounds like fun, right? especially if the government is paying you to build models. Hell, who wouldn't take that job? Siborne went to work. Incidentally, Siborne did not fight in the Battle of Waterloo, but was in Wellington's occupation army that reached Paris in the later summer of 1815, after the battle was over. Siborne did a great deal of historical research for his model. He wanted to be sure, after all, that the soldiers were all in their proper places, and that everything was totally accurate. For years, he pored over documents and dispatches from the battle, eventually amassing an impressive collection of historical documents, which later wound up in the British Library. 
He completed the model in 1838. It invited controversy even before it was finished. It's said that the Duke of Wellington hated it because Siborn placed various pieces on the board that contradicted where Wellington insisted he and his forces were. The model, incidentally, which still exists, depicts the battlefield as it was at 7 p.m. on June 18, 1815, one moment in the long history of this event. Somehow, at least in the English-speaking world, Siborn's model and its supporting documentation crystallized into the primary documents about the Battle of Waterloo. This was reinforced in German-speaking Europe and in military circles when a Prussian officer, Karl von Clausewitz, who had been at Waterloo, wrote an extensive theoretical examination of the tactics used in the battle. These tactics were studied for decades. They still are studied. At West Point in the decades before the Civil War, the maneuvers of Wellington's troops at Waterloo, especially that thing with the squares, was taught to and studied by generations of American soldiers, people with names like Grant, Lee, Longstreet, Jackson, Sherman, and many others. What I'm saying is that the history of Waterloo, from the first years after the battle, was basically owned by military historians, tacticians who had very little interest in the broader human story of what happened there, or why it happened, and that treatment of the event has dominated its historical memory ever since. In fact, much of the story of how the story of Waterloo is told, the historiography as we say, is basically an argument not about what the meaning of the event was, but about Siborne's model. The introduction of the David Hamilton Williams book about Waterloo contains this statement, quote, So heavy has been Siborne's hand on the memory of the event that all histories of it to date, including those written by historians of the other nations involved, depend fundamentally on his interpretation. End quote. That was written in 1993. So for almost 200 years, we've been arguing about a model. We've been arguing about whether this line of troops or that one was really there, on that hill or next to that road, and whose regiment was in support, and who gave orders to who and at what time. Lost in this tactical history, this deluge of pins stuck into maps and piles of orders and dispatches, is what Napoleon's hundred days really meant, why they matter, and what we can learn from them. This will be the last episode of Second Decade that significantly concerns military history, at least for a good long while. Reading about the mass slaughter of human beings, for no compelling reason other than supporting one man's ego, and then seeing that event reduced largely to an arcane and bloodless argument among tacticians, has been for me a profoundly depressing experience. War is not fun, or glorious, or filled with honor and valor. It sucks. That's the lesson I draw from Napoleon's Hundred Days. The next episode of Second Decade will be about a sea monster. Yes, that's right, a sea monster. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Also, check out the other great history podcasts on the Recorded History Network. Podcasts like Art History Babes, Human Circus, Dead Ideas, The Age of Napoleon, Explorers, History in Hindsight, and Stuff What You Tell Me. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. I no longer use Twitter. Remember, I've got a book coming out called Jake's 88. It's available for pre-order on Amazon. It releases on January 15th. 
My historical sources of this episode include 100 Days, Napoleon's Road to Waterloo by Alan Shaw, Athenaeum, 1992, and Waterloo, New Perspectives, The Great Battle Reappraised by David Hamilton Williams, John Wiley and Sons, 1993. Music Credits Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.